Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're coming now to really the completion of this scene that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. The scene of Jesus' initial entry into the city of Jerusalem for the final week of his life. This is the very purpose for which he came to enter into Jerusalem at this time to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is a particularly remarkable time then in the life of Jesus. And so we have witnessed some remarkable scenes also. As this passage unfolds before us and as these events unfold before us, we are continually made aware of the majesty of Christ and of His appearance. And we are made to anticipate Not only the events of his death, which are soon coming, but what is ultimately anticipated beyond these events, which are those of his return and his glorious return at the end of this age. Now, Matthew has already laid before us two very dramatic then and quite overwhelming scenes. We see Jesus at the beginning of this chapter entering into Jerusalem Amid the praise of thousands of Jews who are hailing him as their Messiah, the long-expected one, the one who is their freedom, in their mind the wrong kind of freedom, yet he is their Messiah, and they hail him as such. And then we learn that as he enters into Jerusalem, he looks around at all of the activity that's going on, he leaves, he comes back the next day to enter into another dramatic event, which is the clearing of the temple of all of those things that were dishonoring to the Lord. He overturns tables. He pulls the stools out from other, under others. He confronts the irreligious attitude among the people of God in the temple of God. And by doing so, he stands in the line of the great prophets of God, namely Isaiah and Jeremiah, whom he has just quoted. So these are intense scenes, and they seem to be opposite extremes. We have praise on one end, and we have violence and destruction on the other end. But what runs through them both is the issue of faith. And Jesus is going to address that morning, that this morning through the object lesson of a fig tree, of a fig tree. And in this object lesson, he's going to teach us two very important points about faith, points that we would do well to listen to. The first is that true faith must bear spiritual fruit. And the second is this, that true faith lays hold of the unlimited power of God. The first lesson is a warning, and the second lesson is a glorious promise. So read with me verses 18 through 22. As we seek to cover this glorious passage this morning. Now in the morning when he was returning to the city he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Go back up to verse 18 and first let's set the context of this scene. Matthew tells us in verse 18, now in the morning when he was returning to the city. Now Mark chapter 11 verse 19 actually tells us what was mentioned in the introduction is namely that Jesus first entered into Jerusalem. He looked around at all of the activity that was going on and then he left to the town of Bethany for the evening and then returned the second day in which we have the records events recorded for us in Matthew chapter 12, namely entering into the temple and overturning the tables. Bethany is a distance of about 
two miles from Jerusalem. And so it was a convenient place for Jesus to extract himself from the chaos and all of the attention in the city of Jerusalem to regroup with his disciples to return on the following day. Now, he entered into the city of Jerusalem on Sunday at our best information. He was coming in among the praises of the crowds. That's why we, the palm branches, that's why we have Palm Sunday. The following morning when he cleared the temple was on Monday morning. And then according to Mark, when he came back uh, the morning after clearing the temple, it is Tuesday morning and that is where Matthew then picks up the story. So therefore there is in Mark a chronological account of the events. Jesus seeing the fig tree and cursing it clearing the temple, and then the disciples seeing the fig tree completely withered. Whereas in Matthew, these events are condensed into one account. And he has done this, I believe, to juxtapose the events of his welcome into Jerusalem and his overturning the tables and condemning the worship that is going on there and give it a a more striking uh, emphasis. The reality is, is that Jesus is the Messiah, and he has appeared. Now, both Matthew and Mark note Jesus became hungry. He says that at the, begin, at the end, excuse me, of verse 18, that he became hungry. Now, while this is certainly a reminder of the humanity of Jesus, the full humanity of Jesus, that he is the Son of God clothed in human flesh, I think there is actually something more significant here about the mention of his hunger. His hunger goes much deeper than that. The reality is is that Jesus is now here. The Messiah has shown up. And he is expecting something from his people. And what he's expecting, namely, is worship, righteousness. In other words, he is expecting that his people would be manifesting the fruit of true and genuine faith. Now, in fact, he knows that they don't, and he knows that he will be crucified. But in light of all that his people have received, that would be the natural thing to expect from the people of God. And yet Jesus is now on his way to the temple to address the very fact that though they have all the externals of religion, they are a people who have neglected the reality of true and genuine faith in their God. They are engaged in external activity, like the foliage on the tree, the leaves, and yet they are devoid of spiritual fruit. And remember that Jesus has spent the night in Bethany after seeing these events. And no doubt, during this night in Bethany, he was in communion with the Father, whom he was seeking his will, even wondering what to do on the following day. John has told us that Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And no doubt he was preparing for what he saw the Father doing and what the Father would have him do the next day, which is pronounced judgment on his people. Just as Jeremiah had done many years earlier while in the gate of the temple. So Jesus, knowing his task, then is hungry. And this hunger then parallels that desire to see fruit from the people of God, but knowing that there is none, so this fig tree then becomes an object lesson. And like this fig tree that should be bearing fruit to satisfy hunger but does not and is cursed, so Jesus, as the Messiah of God, God in flesh, wanting and expecting to see fruit from His people and does not and is soon going to curse them. So let's notice in verse 19 then this cursing of the fig tree. And it's a warning then against fruitless faith. A warning against fruitless faith. He sees then this following morning, now Tuesday morning, this lone, excuse me, Monday morning, this lone fig tree by the road. And so he walks up to it and he found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there be any fruit from you. No longer shall there be any fruit from you. This is an incredible scene. Now, according to Mark eleven fourteen, it was not the season for figs. And that is, it wasn't the season for figs to be fully ripe and abundant on the bushes. But it was the time of year for early figs to appear on the trees. And often they did before the appearance of leaves or at the same time of the appearance of leaves on the trees. So it would be perfectly natural here for the Lord 
to expect this fig tree to have some fruit for him to eat and satisfy his hunger. Now, fig trees were abundant in the land of Palestine. They were a staple for food. They had large leaves that were often used for shade. You'll remember in John 1.48, Jesus saw Nathanael sitting under a fig tree, no doubt sitting under there from the getting cool from the heat of the day and meditating on the Word of God. It's often shown that way throughout the prophets. And therefore, the fig tree, because of its provision of food and because of its provision of comfort and shade, was an apt metaphor for the people of God and for the nation of Israel. And so often in the prophets, the fig tree was used to speak of the blessing of God, and it was also used to picture the cursing of God on the nation when they were disobedient there would be an absence of the comfort and the abundance of fig trees. But here then, it is an apt illustration for the nation of Israel. And as this fig tree is barren and cursed by God, so it becomes a symbol of Israel's barrenness and state of soon to being cursed by God. Let me draw your attention to three passages, three particular passages that are behind this. And follow along with me. The first is in Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah chapter 24. I'll read them. You can turn there if you want. In Jeremiah chapter 24, the prophet is addressing the people soon to go into captivity under King Nebuchadnezzar. And he describes the people of God in this way in verse 2. And actually, let me back up to verse 1. Jeremiah is here looking at Jerusalem. And he says, The Lord showed me, behold, two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. Then the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness. And then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of of Judah, whom I have sent out to this place, into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them to this land, and I will build them up, and will not overthrow them, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord." And they will be my people and I will be their God. For they will return to me with their whole heart. But like the bad figs which cannot be eaten due to rottenness. Indeed, thus says the Lord, I will abandon Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt. In other words, the good... The spiritually good, those who know the Lord, the righteous, are the good figs whom the Lord will plant in the land, whom the Lord will give a heart to know Him, whom the Lord will bless. The bad figs are those who are abandoned by the Lord because they have abandoned Him. Turn over to Hosea. Hosea chapter 9. Hosea chapter 9. We have another striking illustration here. In Hosea chapter 9, God is pronouncing judgment on His people for their unfaithfulness. And so He says through the prophet in verse 10. Actually, look at the middle of verse 9. He says, He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. He says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. And they became as detestable as that which they loved. And he's looking here at the nation and he's saying, here is a nation that comes from the root of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, men who followed me, men who were the founders of or the progenitors, as it were, of my covenant, the ones on whom I established my nation. And you would expect then that my people built on this foundation would bear good fruit, but instead they have not. They've turned to their own idolatry and self-interest, and therefore God is going to give them up. They relied on the external form of worship, neglecting the faith of their forefathers. Turn to one last passage in Micah. Micah chapter 7. And Micah chapter 7 is probably more directly what is behind the action of the Lord here in Matthew chapter 21. 
In Micah, again, judgment is being pronounced on the disobedient among the nation of Israel. And he says in verse 1, the prophet does, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among them. Here the prophet is giving an illustration of one who is hungry. He finds grapes and fig trees and he expects to have them satisfy his hunger. And yet he goes to them and there is none. And so that becomes a picture then of the people of the nation of Israel. He goes to his people and expects to find righteousness. But what does he find? He doesn't find righteousness. He finds that the godly person has perished from the land and that there is no upright person among them. It's tragic. It's tragic. And so here, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, turn back to Matthew chapter 21, he comes to this fig tree. And just as in the prophets of old, he comes to this fig tree, which is standing here as a symbol for the people of God. He is hungry. He expects to be satisfied. There's no fruit. And so he curses it. He curses it, anticipating the events that are soon going to take place. He says to this fig tree, there will be no fruit ever from you. He, it's a condemnation to barrenness because of its barrenness. It's an anticipation of the sudden judgment that is going to come upon the nation of God. He's not acting here out of anger. This is not some human outburst of the flesh This is the Son of God, the Messiah, who knows His mission and who knows the tragic events that are lying right before Him and before the people of God. He knows the picture of the prophets. He knows the barrenness of the nation. And here, this fig tree stands in as a lesson. He should have rightly expected there to be the fruit of righteousness among the people of God, and yet there was not. They were... A tree, a fig tree with leaves, but without fruit. They had all the externals of religion. They had all the externals of religion. And of course, this is what Jesus is constantly confronting them with. They honored God with their lips, but their heart was far from Him. And it's a devastating picture then, and a warning to those who profess relationship with God, but they do not know Him. And the issue here is that Israel was secure in their leaves of religion. They knew the scriptures. They were fastidious in the externals. They had a pseudo-respect for the temple. They went through the motions of sacrifice. They did not follow the gods of the Romans. And yet, in all of that, it was leaves and no fruit. If you could have walked into Jerusalem with Jesus, if you could walk into the homes of many Jews today who are practicing Jews, you would be very impressed with the degree of their religion, with the outward signs of religion. That is the engaging part of the Catholic Church. It has impressive buildings, it has impressive ceremonies, it has impressive rituals, their priests and their bishops and their cardinals wear impressive religious vestments, and yet it is all leaves. It's all leaves. There is no spiritual fruit. And so it is with many in the church who rest in their leaves and have no spiritual fruit. Church attendance, Bible knowledge, active in service, do not follow after the vanities of the world, and yet it's all leaves and it's no spiritual fruit. And so this is an essential illustration for us to understand. And we must be clear then in identifying what spiritual fruit actually is. What should God have expected from his people? It's very simple. What is the heart of the law? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of, with all of your strength. He should have expected them to embrace him out of love for God. What then is spiritual fruit for us? What is spiritual fruit for us? How do we identify it? How do we identify spiritual fruit? Let me give you five ways. Five ways to identify spiritual fruit. And this is essential for us to understand. How do I know then that my life bears the mark of genuine faith? 
How do I know that my life bears the marks of a work of the Spirit of God in my heart? First is this. Spiritual fruit is to be inwardly awakened to the glory and the beauty of God, particularly as He is revealed in Christ. God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The first evidence of spiritual fruit is to be awakened to the beauty and to the glory of God and to long for Him. Secondly, what is spiritual fruit? A second spiritual fruit is this, is to be aware of the sin within you. Not just around you, not just outside of you, but the sin that is within you before a perfect and a holy God. Spiritual fruit is to feel the need for personal forgiveness from God that is offered only in Christ. It is to feel and to know and to desire the spiritual cleansing from God that can come only through Christ. It is to have affections that recognize that Christ is a treasure hidden in the field and He is worth abandoning everything to have. A third spiritual fruit is this is then to live in such a way that you desire fellowship with Him, and you hate the remaining sin in you. Being convicted of sin is not simply to acknowledge sin, it is to hate sin. Do you understand the difference? It is to hate the sin within you. Again, not just around you. It's not just being able to identify sin in a corrupt culture and in our neighbors. It is to identify the sin in your own heart and to want to turn from it. Therefore, spiritual fruit is the regular confession of sin. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive you your sins. It is to daily be brought freshly to rely on the death and the resurrection of Christ alone for your salvation. It is to live with a constant conscious awareness that I can only stand before a holy God because I am covered in the righteousness of Christ. That is spiritual fruit. Number four, spiritual fruit is this. It is to have a love for righteousness, an obedient submission to Him in thought, in attitude, and in action in every area of life. It is not a perfect submission, but it is a consistent desire to submit to Him. It is a consistent desire to bring our lives under His Lordship, His loving Lordship in obedience to Him, to love Him more than the world. A fifth spiritual fruit is this. It is to love His Word and Scripture because He is revealed in it. His commands, His character, His promises, the truth which we live by. It is to be like a newborn babe in 1 Peter chapter 2 that longs for the pure milk of the Word that by it we might grow in respect to salvation if we have tasted the kindness of the Lord. That is the spiritual fruit that God expects from our lives that identifies us as being His children That is the kind of fruit he should have expected from the people. And so when they heard of a Savior that would forgive their sins, the law having prepared their heart, if in fact it had done its work spiritually, then they would have embraced him and they would have borne this fruit. But they did not. And so the question is for us, do you bear that fruit before God? Do those things mark your life? God gives no regard for externals. He's only concerned about a heart to turn to Him and that loves His Son. They did not love Him, and so they did not bear spiritual fruit, and so Jesus, Jesus curses the fig tree and enters into Jerusalem. The time of judgment has come for the people of God. And then in verse 20, seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And this is really a pretty amazing statement by the disciples. Now the fig tree, according to Mark, began to wither all at once. It withered from the roots up, and so the effects of its death were seen immediately. The actual full death of the fig tree was not recognized until the following morning, Tuesday morning, at which time Peter addresses the Lord and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Here, Matthew simply tells us that they marveled and they asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? How in such a short period of time did this vibrant live bush die? And again, this is really quite amazing in its spiritual dullness. 
Remember, this is the end of the Lord's three-year ministry among his people. They had seen him calm the storms, feed thousands, heal diseases, cast out demons, raise the dead, walk on the water. Heal, uh, withering a fig tree should not have surprised them so much. And yet it did because they were dull. And just like the parables that Jesus had to repeatedly explain to them, and sometimes even to his own surprise, they seem here more amazed by the quickness at which this tree withered than by what it represents, the significance of it. In either case, interestingly, Jesus does not from that point take time to explain the symbolism of the fig tree, but rather teaches them a lesson on faith. He teaches them a lesson on faith. He bypasses the symbolism altogether, which no doubt they would have understood in some measure, more later, of course. And he says rather that there is a common thread here that I want to unfold before you, and namely, it is a lesson about faith. And so he tells them in verse 21, And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. And so after giving a warning, now he gives an incredible promise. Namely, that true faith opens one up to the unlimited power of God. Now, the imagery here that Jesus uses of a mountain being cast into the sea is not original with Jesus. It was a common picture, it was a common phrase used among the rabbis simply to speak of this, of doing the impossible, of doing what seems like it cannot be done. The rabbis would use this to speak of overcoming a great obstacle or anything else that seems like it cannot be done but can only be done by the power of of God, or a very wise rabbi, as they would often use it. The point of the picture for Jesus, however, is to say this, that nothing is impossible. There is no obstacle too great. There is nothing too large for the Lord to do in the lives of those who trust Him. Who trust Him. As a matter of fact, the most frequent rebuke that we see in Scripture is of the failure to trust God and His power to work on behalf of His people. Let me give you a few examples. When God told Moses to give the people meat in Numbers 11, Moses stopped, uh, responded with incredulity. He's like, what do you mean? How am I going to feed all of these people? And the Lord's response to him in verses 21 through 22 is this. The Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. In other words, Moses, why did you doubt the power of God when I've given you a clear command to obey? When the man brought his son to Jesus after the Mount of Transfiguration, he brought him to Jesus and he told him, the man said to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And what did Jesus reply to him? He said, if you can, question mark, what do you mean if you can? All things are possible to him who believes. The issue is faith, trusting in the power and the willingness of God to act on your behalf. And so God, or Jesus, asked the blind man in Matthew chapter 9, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I am able to do this? To which they replied, yes, Lord. And so he healed them. When the rich young ruler walked away, his disciples said, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The issue that Jesus most often has to rebuke is that of not trusting him, of that of not believing in the great and the mighty power of God to work on behalf of his people. Now, this statement of Jesus, then, is absolutely astonishing. It is a breathtaking promise. It's a breathtaking promise. It displays, then, God's willingness to exercise his unlimited power, the very power that called the universe into existence, the very power that sustains his entire creation, the very power that rules over everything, working it towards his final purpose, is the power that works on behalf of and for his people. And he has committed it to us through believing prayer. So there is absolutely nothing in your life 
No righteous desire of your heart, no plans for service of ministry, no situation in your life that does not become a trite obstacle before the power of God, before the mighty hand of God. And the disciples would need this promise, for the Lord was going to require amazing things from them, things that would continually impress them with their own weakness, with their own insufficiency, and with their own inability to do everything that God had called them to do. That was a consistent awareness in their life. And so this promise would be particularly needed by them and anyone in Christian service particularly. And so that then really is the connection between the symbol of destruction and the promise to the disciples. Essentially, Jesus is saying this. Your world is going to be turned upside down and the whole religious structure you know is going to be abolished and transferred to me. And you're going to be my spokesman, my witnesses to the truth. And the task is greater than you and it will cost you as it is going to cost me your very own life. But you have every resource of heaven to accomplish my will if you trust him and you seek him in obedience. And again, they needed to hear this. And so Jesus is going to repeat this promise many times again. But this brings up a very important issue. What are the qualifications to know this kind of power in prayer? What are the qualifications to know this kind of power in prayer? Some of you may be thinking, I have prayed for many things and I thought I was praying according to the will of God and yet it didn't happen. I didn't see a loved one saved. I didn't see someone healed or protected. I didn't see my job spared or gained. I didn't see the hopes for something that I so strongly desired come true. How then does this promise apply to me? Well, Jesus gives a qualification that we must understand. Look again at what he says in verse, the beginning of verse 21 and then verse 22. If you have faith and do not doubt all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now people have misused and abused this verse many times over. And for some, they've misunderstood it in this sense, that God is essentially writing a blank check, that if I go to him, then I have opened up the resources of heaven to provide for me whatever it is that I want. Or, even more tragically, some have been made to believe that God is willing to do everything for you, and if it doesn't happen, then the problem is your own faith. If you aren't healed, it's your lack of faith. If, you aren't, if your child isn't healed, it's your lack of faith. If you don't have resources to pay your bills, it is your own lack of faith. It's terrible. It's terrible. Now, how then are we to understand this verse, this connection between prayer and faith? prayer and believing prayer. Well, the question really comes down to this, and this is what we must answer. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith? Faith, as it's commonly used in our language today, it simply means this to many people, a strong confidence or certainty that something will happen. That's faith. It's an emotional assurance that God has heard or a deep confidence that, we will be, that what we've asked for was according to the will of God. It is a sense of being certain that God has heard me and he will bring it to pass. And that is how faith is defined. And there is an element of truth to that, but that's not all. That's only part of the picture. And if it doesn't go any more than that, then we can be quite deceived, even worse, disappointed, frustrated, or distrusting of God. But this, is this what Jesus meant by having faith? Is this what he's telling his disciples and telling us through them? Is he only talking about a really strong confidence or emotional or even a rational assurance that we have that he has heard us and he will do it? Or is he talking about something more? Hebrews 11 does define faith in this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. He later says in Hebrews 11 that he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. But what is this confidence? What is this assurance of God's word? And what is this assurance that he is a rewarder of faith? 
It must be something more than a blank check. For instance, those who are given as examples of faith in Hebrews 11 did not see the fruition of the extraordinary promises of God. Many of them died in faith, not having seen and witnessed these glorious promises of God. Not only that, but many of them were killed and were destitute and were wandering around in caves and thrown into pits and sawn into two and so forth. And yet they are examples of faith. So what is this faith in believing? Let me answer that in this way. First, by noting two conditions of faith and two goals of faith that identify what Jesus is talking about here. I'll go through these rather quickly. The first is the two conditions of faith. The faith that Jesus is talking about here, the believing prayer, is one that has the right object. It has the right object, namely Christ and God himself. Listen to chapter 17, verse 20. We've covered this a while ago. Jesus said this, when the disciples could not cast out the demon from the man's son, Jesus rebukes them for having littleness of faith. And he says this, He said to them in verse 20 of Matthew 17, because of the littleness of your faith, they're asking why they can't cast it out. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now the mustard seed, just as a reminder, was the smallest seed known in Palestine. It's a cultural statement by observation to those who were there. It is not a scientific statement. That's not how he means it, and they wouldn't have understood it otherwise. He's referring to what they understood as being the smallest seed. And his point here is this. It's not how much faith that is the most essential, but it is the object of their faith. It's the object of their faith. He's saying even the smallest amount of faith can lay hold of the unlimited resources of God. Even the smallest amount of faith like a mustard seed that perseveres, that is diligent, and that is growing, and that is hanging on to the promises of God can do great things and can see the power of God unleashed in their life. Jesus told his disciples on the night that he was sharing the last meal with them, believe in God, believe also in me. He told them later in John 16, if you ask anything from the... If you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. The essence of believing prayer, then, is to have the right object. It is to believe and lay hold of God in truth. Believe and lay hold of God as he has revealed himself in Scripture and in Christ. And there is a sense in which the greater faith the person has, then the greater things that will be undertaken for God's glory and the greater experience of the power of God will be made known. William Carey made the famous statement, a missionary to India, the father of modern missions, so he's known, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. It was his confidence in the power of God that motivated him and enabled him to reach out and to do what was seemingly impossible and God did great things through him. Secondly, condition of faith. It has to have the right object, God, and it must be submissive and obedient to Christ and his word. Submissive and obedient to Christ and his word. Look with me just briefly over at John 15. John chapter 15 Now, Jesus has already given his disciples an amazing promise in verse 12. He says, the works that I do, he who believes in him will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. In verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then later in chapter 15, he adds to this promise. And he does so in the context of teaching his disciples about who is truly going to be a recipient of this promise. It is the one who is truly attached to the vine, who is truly in spiritual union with Christ. And so he tells them in verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
If you abide in me, and if my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. In other words, the one who becomes able to receive this promise and to know this confidence is one who is truly spiritually attached to Christ, who is bearing the spiritual fruit that we mentioned earlier, and who has his word deeply abiding in them and is obedient to that word. He says in verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The issue then is abiding in Christ, remaining in trust and obedience. That is to say this, beloved, if you want to know the reality of this promise, the question is, is are you pursuing God in His Word? This isn't just some feeling, it's not some emotion of confidence, it is a life that is dedicated to pursuing the knowledge of God in His Word. Are you seeking obedience to God in every area of your life? Your thoughts, your attitude, your action, every component of your life, is it being brought into obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His Word? If it is, then, you will know this power. It will be manifested in your life. In Mark eleven twenty five, He gives a specific act of obedience. He says, The one who stands praying to God and has anything against his brother must forgive He must forgive in order to receive the forgiveness of God, in order to know the power of God. The question is, do you have something in your life then that is unwilling to be yielded to the Lord in the act of obedience in forgiving another? If there is, then you won't know this power. But if you do forgive, then you will know what he speaks of here. Negatively, if you are not pursuing a growing knowledge of God and His Word, if you're not seeking obedience to Him and what He has revealed, you should not expect anything from Him. And in fact, in the context of John 15, if that isn't the mark of your life, then it may be that you're a fruitless branch and in fact not savingly connected to Christ in the first place. Where there is sin, self-will, a lack of holiness, pride, lack of diligence in obeying Christ, then we will be cut off from the promise here. But if you are pursuing him and you are having his word abide in you, him, his word abide in you, then you can know this power of prayer. You can know this power of prayer. Those are the conditions then of faith that you must look to God and his power alone, that your life must be set in the direction of obeying him and following him. Next is the condition of faith. There are two, or the goals of faith, excuse me. And the first is this. Believing prayer has the goal of undivided allegiance to God. He says in Matthew 21, he said this. If you have faith and you do not doubt, if you do not doubt, the term for doubt here speaks of a divided heart, a divided allegiance, vacillating between trusting God and pursuing your own interest, between following God and His will and pursuing your own will. Negatively, He gives us an illustration of this in James. I'll read it to you. You know this verse, James 1.6. He says this, and in 1.6 he's talking about the one who is in trials, the one who is in difficulties, and is seeking from God wisdom, understanding, clarity of mind and thinking. He says this in verse 6, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. This is the man who goes to God in prayer, or a woman, and who is always vacillating back and forth, trusting God, not trusting God, submitted to His will, not submitted to His will, wanting what God wants, wanting what you want. This is the one who should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. You should not go to the promise then and say, God will bless my faith and do more than I can imagine until you are settled on following Him and trusting Him. And a moment of confidence and commitment does not meet the requirements here. It is that of a consistent pattern of life of trusting in the Lord. Not perfect, but where your will is set to honor the Lord in all that you do. Positively, he gives another illustration. Turn over a few pages to 1 John chapter 5. He says this in verses 14. 
or verse 14 of chapter 5. Actually, you start in verse 22 of chapter 3. It says, whatever we ask, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Look over at verse 14 of chapter 5. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask according, anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Then to know this power of prayer is to have a life of obedience and confidence in him and pursuing his will. It is to say this, the prayer of faith wants the same things that God wants. Sometimes we pray, and we pray confident, thinking that it's a prayer of faith, but in reality what we're doing is we're going to God, and we're saying, God, I want to convince you to want the same things that I want. I'm trying to convince you to bend your will to my will. Rather than going to God and saying, my will needs to bend to yours, the things you delight in or what I want to delight in. It is to say that your prayer in a prayer of faith is working towards the same end that God is working towards. And that is your holiness, your obedience, your likeness to Christ, your usefulness in his kingdom to bear spiritual fruit, the usefulness of your life to bring glory to his name. If you're praying a prayer of faith, then that's the end that you're praying towards. The prayer of faith, then, is a matter of trusting Him. It is a matter of obeying His will. And that in no way lessens the impact of the promise here, but it does put it into the context of one who is yielding to the will of God. Paul, you'll remember, prayed to the Lord three times that he would take away the thorn, and the Lord said, no, no. Because he had a different purpose in his life. But because it was a prayer of faith, the apostle was able to yield to the Lord and to rejoice in the Lord's strength that was available in the trial. And in that way, he did what was impossible. What was impossible? To bear the trial with joy and with grace. Abraham was a man of faith. It says in Romans 4.20 that with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in doubt or in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith. It did not mean that he never doubted because we have occasions where he did. It did not mean that he obeyed perfectly because we have occasions of his sin, but it does mean the pattern of his life was to trust God and to obey him fully and the Lord did amazing things through him. Let me give you another example of how this works out in life. George Mueller, a man you've heard us mention many times, was a man of prayer through whom God worked powerfully. He was alive during the 1800s, and through the course of his life, he cared for thousands of orphans. He supported missionaries across the globe. He spoke internationally, and his life and his life of prayer was used to strengthen the church in many, many nations and still, still today. He even established schools. And he did all of this which required what is in the equivalent of our uh, money. Millions and millions of dollars. And yet he did it all through the power of prayer. He never sought money or support from outside his prayer life and going directly to God. And so he stands as a testimony to the power of God. But again, it does not mean that there was never struggles. It does not mean that everything just instantly appeared on his table. As a matter of fact, he said this quote in one of his journals. As we, have found, uh, as we have often found it to be the case, so it is now again. After the Lord has tried our faith, he in the love of his heart gives us an abundance to show that not in anger, but for the glory of his name and for the trial of our faith, he allowed us to be poor, end quote. He allowed them to be poured only to abundantly show his power and his grace at the proper time. When we pray to the Lord in faith, we pray waiting for His proper time, allowing that He will choose how He is to glorify His name in our life. Lastly, and we'll end with this, the goal then of believing prayer has the ultimate end of glorifying Christ. It has the ultimate end of glorifying Christ. 
We read it earlier. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In verse 8 of chapter 15. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It is when we can go to God and legitimately say that I want you, God, more than anything, more than me just getting the answer to the thing I want, I want you to be glorified in it. And if we cannot say that, then we're not praying a believing prayer. If we can know whether we're saying that by whether or not we're disappointed in whether God answers or not, whether we get frustrated with God, whether we get disbelieving in Him, whether we have hard thoughts towards God, if it's, that's the case, then we weren't praying and believing prayer. Believing prayer yields to God. Jesus Himself prayed, if this cross could be taken away from me, but it could not, and so He yielded His will to God, and He endured it. And this prayer, finally, means it changes what we pray for. And the primacy of our prayers is not just for material things. That is a part of it. But the primacy of our prayers, and we do see God do amazing things and the impossible things like provide for orphans, help Peter to walk on water, cause the Roman Empire to repent through the faithful prayers and obedience of, his, well, the Roman Empire to claim itself a Christian nation after only 300 years because of the powerful testimony of Christians in the working of God. It is then to pray, however, for the spiritual grace to honor the Lord and to be useful in His kingdom. Paul said we are not adequate for the things that God has called us for, but our adequacy is in Christ. An example of having the faith and the prayer reality that moves mountains was for Paul then the ability to endure everything that he did for the name of Christ and see the power of Christ work in those in whom he brought the gospel to. The point is this, if you've embraced Christ by faith, you've yielded to Him in all things, you're pursuing to honor Him, you have His Word abiding in you, and you are obeying Him, then this promise is for you, and you will be seeking His glory, and you will be praying for His glory to be manifest in your life, however He chooses to do that. He will do the impossible through us, He will do the impossible in us, and that is the one who is, through in the one who is submitted to Him in all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious promise. Help us to yield our lives to you in full obedience to your word. Help us to trust you in every area of our life. And help us to know the glorious reality of this promise that you've made to your disciples and ultimately to us. Help us to align our will with your will. Help us to be able to lay every request at your feet and to say in all sincerity, it is for your glory, it is for your honor, and may your name be praised. Help us to lay every request at your feet and say, Lord, I want only in this request to be used of you. I want only in this request, however you choose to answer it, to be shaped and conformed to the image of my Savior who purchased me with his own blood, to have growth in my fellowship with you and my felt love for you and my desire to honor you. Lord, make us those kind of prayers and help us then as those obedient children to anticipate to see the great and the glorious things that you'll do in us and through us individually and as a church for the glory of your great name. And Lord, certainly for those who are here who don't know this reality, in truth, they know it with their lips but not in their heart and their life. I do pray that you would convict them that they would not be a leafy tree with no fruit, but they would be a true fruit-bearing disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. Do that work in them, I pray. Amen.